If God blessed us with a girl, we decided that her name, and we had some discussion over this, we decided that her name would be Carissa, an alternative spelling, C-H-A-R-R, wait, <laughs> C-H-A-R-I-S-S-A, after the Greek word for grace, charis. And we have, uh, I, it, it's been great to be a dad, to be parents. And one of the honors was to name the baby. I, I looked this week, uh, with all the crazy names that are coming out these days, I, I, you know, I did my Google search and, and found some future popular baby names that were already seen kind of crop up around here, in fact. Um, there's different categories. I put them in categories. One of the categories is the wildflower names. Names like Willow and Azalea and Magnolia. Really, really nice names. I, I, I really like that. Um, a category of spices and herbs. That, that category. Sage and Rosemary and Juniper. That's, that's nice, too. I, I like that. Um, the, the category of baby names, first names that are really last names. Have you, have you noticed that? That's really popular now. They have names like Nixon and uh, McKinney, um, Lennon and Monroe, Henley, Kennedy. There's even a, a, a little, just a beauty running around here. Her, name's, her name is Harlow. Beautiful name, beautiful girl. Then there's the uplifting names that you, you get a lot of today. Uplifting category names like Justice, strong name. I, I, I love that name. Bodhi and Sincere, Destiny, Haven, Eden, Jubilee, in fact. And so it's, it's, it's changing. It's always changing, and it's, it's great. Let me read to you a couple Old Testament scriptures that refer to a name of a baby. First, a Christmas prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill This was to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We'll talk about that meaning today. From our text in Isaiah chapter 9, we'll start with verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And now from the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made 
that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word for us this morning. I thought this week as I looked at the whole Christmas story, reading through the gospel accounts and from the Old Testament prophecies, when you look at the Christmas story in the gospels, the beginning of the gospel of Matthew and of Luke it gives us that Christmas narrative that we're all familiar with. I mean, you, didn't, you don't even have to know too much about the Bible, and you could probably piece together that Christmas story. It's the Christmas narrative in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke, and it gives you the facts of the story. If I, would, if I just told you about what are the, who are the, the main players in the story, you would mention angels and shepherds, and you'd think back to your Charlie Brown Christmas reading, and you'd think, well, there's angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph, there is a baby in a manger, and you could tell the story. We're familiar with it. But John chapter 1, it doesn't mention any of the facts of the story, the, the, the narrative. But what John concentrates on is the meaning. That's the meaning of the Christmas narrative. What does all of this mean? That his name is Emmanuel. We'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is it that Isaiah, in chapter 9, verse 6, he runs through a list of four names, the wonder of a counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. Why, why does he do this? Well, John 1 tells, does not tell us what happened in the birth of Christ, but it tells us what the birth of Christ means. So let's take a look at this. What does it mean that Jesus is mighty God? What does it mean? We heard last week from Thomas that Jesus was called Wonderful Counselor. But now, today, we'll take a look at what does it mean that Jesus is mighty God? From our text in John chapter 1, we'll focus today on verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Today we'll discover how meaningful, the, the, the meaningfulness of that Jesus is mighty God. And so when we look at this, the first point we can make here today is the, the meaning that Jesus is mighty God, number one is this, in Jesus, God is fully human. In Jesus, we see that God is fully human. And in the phrase here is, the word became flesh. We are told that Jesus is the word of God. And, and the per, a person's word, their, their word, is the clearest and 
the, the ultimate revelation of who they are. Let me illustrate this a little bit. Um, let me try to illustrate this a little bit. There, there's someone here, uh, a part of our Nova Church family, and when they first came, I met them at the back door after I preached a sermon, and they came through, and, and I said, hi, my name's Dean, and they told me their name. And the weeks after that, on Sundays, I would go out on the plaza, and I would, I would see them at the coffee cart. I'd pour them a cup, and they'd pour me a cup one time, and, and we would just say, hello, and how are you? And that was the extent of our conversation. But I'd see them week after week after week. It was sort of our meeting place at the coffee cart, getting a cup of coffee. Well, a few weeks after all of that, they said, can I, can I talk with you during the week sometime? And I said, sure. Just email me, call me at the office, and we'll make an appointment. And they did, and, and we set an appointment. And so I was all set. I had it my calendar. And, and just maybe 15 minutes before they were going to meet me here, I put on a, cup of co- a pot of coffee. We'll have coffee. And so they arrived, and I said, hello. I said, hey, I put on a pot of coffee for us. I know how you like coffee. And they said, oh, I, I don't like coffee. I said, well, every time we see each other on Sunday, we're pouring each other a cup of coffee. Oh, I, I don't drink coffee. And so we sat down in the fireside room, and I'm drinking my coffee alone, just, just by myself. <laughs> and I said, I, it kind of puzzles me. I put on a pot of coffee because I thought you liked coffee. And they said, oh, I just get coffee because that's what everyone else is doing. But I don't really drink it. Huh. Maybe here's a better illustration. Uh, 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 For the past three years, I spend early mornings six days a week, maybe longer than three years. Maybe the past three years, I spend early mornings six days a week with the same 25 people. We're in the same building. We're in the same room. We're basically doing the same thing. And I can infer all kinds of things about these 25 people. I mean, what they like to wear, what their favorite colors are what teams, sports teams they're a fan of, how disciplined they are. I could tell you um, if they were gone for a few days because I don't see them. I can tell you how much weight they lost and how strong they're getting. But I don't know them. I, I, I never met them. In fact, I saw one of them when we were having breakfast with my wife and my son, like I said last week, and I saw one of them, and I was going to tell my son and my wife, hey, there's a guy I work out with at the gym in there. And, uh, but I don't, I don't know him. I don't know his name. But I, we saw each other, and our eyes locked, and I turned away. I never talked to him. You see, words are the clearest and most ultimate expression of who you are. You reveal yourself through your word. And when the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is the word of God, it's telling us that you can't know God except by his word. That's Jesus. And it doesn't mean you can't know things about God, because you can know all kinds of things about God. Just like I infer all kinds of things about people, that they would like coffee and, 
in how much weight they lift, how much they run. But I don't really talk with them, so I don't really know them. You, you can know facts about God, but to really know him, it takes Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. D.A. Carson, a, a seminary professor, author, speaker, scholar, he says this. He says, if we are to know God, neither rationalism nor mysticism will suffice. For God chose to make himself known finally and ultimately in a real historical human being. You see, D.A. Carson is not saying that there are no rational reasons to believe. In fact, if you want to know those rational reasons to believe, if you want to study them and learn them, here in room A in the second hour, today we're starting a class on some of those things. But D.A. Carson is not saying there are no rational reasons to believe. In fact, when we, when we read that Jesus is the Word of God, the Greek word for word here is logos. We get our word logic from that. But God didn't just give us this rational and logical argument for knowing him. He gave us not an argument, but he gave us a reason. I mean, he gave us a person, a person in Jesus Christ. Now, if you examine Jesus' claims and teachings, and you examine his claims, and you look at his life, you can see that his actions and his behaviors, they back up everything he says. And you can find out logical reason to believe because of that. But if you want to know someone, really know someone, you can't just observe them. You can't just infer things about them. You can't just know what they eat and what they drink, what they do early mornings. You can only know someone by their word. So if you want to know God, it can only happen through his word. In John chapter 1, it tells us that God's word is Jesus Christ. What's the meaning that Jesus is mighty God? Number one, in Jesus, God is fully human. Number two, in Jesus, God is vulnerable. He's vulnerable. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus is word made flesh. He's he's vulnerable. God is killable here. This means that God has become vulnerable to us. No other religion, no other world religion has this. Christmas points to this. The divine creator of the world has become human and therefore vulnerable. He has come down to us. Perhaps you remember in 1964, in, a, the, in, in Queens, New York, in an area called Kew Garden. Maybe you recall this, reading this in the paper, watching it on the news. Or maybe you were like me, I studied this when I was in college about this woman named Catherine Genovese who was walking home from her apartment in Kew Garden and she was assaulted on the street and she cried out. She said, help, help me, someone's stabbing me. And there's a lot of debate as to what happened after all of that, but the facts are this, that people in the surrounding apartments 
looked out their windows to see what the commotion was all about. But no one came down. Why? Wow, there's all kinds of reasons and theories. But basically, it's because people were afraid. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to get involved for fear of being being vulnerable. And what happened when Kitty got assaulted initially, lights turned on and people opened their curtains to look outside to see what the commotion was about, and the assailant ran away. But then, after everyone closed their curtains again, he came back and he murdered her. Christmas tells us that when Jesus heard our cries, he came down and he made himself vulnerable. Jesus came down knowing it would cost cost him his life. More than that, he came down and he gave his life to us. In Jesus, God is vulnerable. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, Jesus, Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason he had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. One of the most fascinating implications of this Hebrew chapter 2 passage is if it is true, if it's true that God of the, God of the universe became human, then he understands. He understands you and me because he's been where you've been. And he knows everything about you. And no other religion says this. Christianity says that the creator God has been made vulnerable. And so, if for the hungry, he has felt that hunger. He knows the anxiety and the insecurity of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. He if you're lonely, he, he's been lonely. He knows how you feel. If, if you're poor, if you're, if you're facing financial ruin right now, he understands that. If you've been betrayed, if you're sad today, he, he knows. If you've been rejected, he has too. If you've had injustice exacted on you, so has he. He has experienced it all. And you can go to him. You can trust him. He's a wonderful counselor, and he's mighty God. What does it mean that he's mighty God? Number one, in Jesus, God is fully human. Number two, in Jesus, God is vulnerable. And number three, the last point today is this, in Jesus, God is present. He is present with us. In verse 14 in our text in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now when John says, uses the word dwelling among us, he could have used any number of words when he expressed that 
Jesus made his dwelling among us. He could have said he lived among us. He, he resided among us. But what John literally says here is fascinating because he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. Now, John is deliberately taking this Greek word that was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and he uses the word for, uh, uses the word for tabernacle that was used when Moses had a tabernacle that he set up in the wilderness. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. And John is reminding us of this time that Moses was interacting with God. And he went up to the mountain, and he asked God, can I see your face? Can I get to know you more intimately? And God says, I I, I can't show you my face, Moses. It'll kill you if you see my face. But you can build a tabernacle, and I'll dwell there. And because my glory must be concealed, you can't know it, you can't see it, and you can't touch it. And this is the opposite of what John is writing here. That's why he uses this word tabernacle. In Jesus, God is present. He's here, and we can know him. So what does this mean, that we can know God, that he's tabernacled amongst us? He's, he's here. What this means is this. This is good news. That Christmas means that it's the end of religion as we know it. Because religion would ask the question to the Christian, where's your temple? Where's your holy place? And the Christian would say, Jesus is our tabernacle. He's our temple. The religion would say, well, where are your priests? Where, what, where do your priests do their thing? And the Christian would say, that Jesus, Jesus is our high priest. He's the great shepherd. Re- religion would say, how do you get the favor of, in the attention of your God How do you make sacrifices to him so that he'll like you? And the Christian would say, Jesus is the one and only. He's the perfect sacrifice. And those who are religious would say, well, what kind of religion is this? And the Christian would say, it's not the kind of religion where you've got to do a bunch of things. It, It means that we have no rules, we have no regulations, we have no rituals. That Jesus died on the cross to bridge the gap between mankind, human beings, and God. So we don't have to do anything. Jesus took care of everything on the cross. And so we sing, and you see us singing. You, we, we give, we put, we put our dollars in that plate. We, we serve, we, we're out serving we worship we gather we sacrifice we reach out we make disciples as a way to worship him with our lives not as a way to curry favor with him religion says this is live this way and then you'll be accepted the christian says accept jesus and you're going to want to live this way So what are some practical applications to all of this? The first is this. If Jesus is mighty God, if he is, you can't just like him. 
And, and we got to say this at Christmas, we got to say this because this is, this is what it's all about. For those of you who have never settled this, we talk about Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. For those of you who have never settled this, you've got to figure this out. Jesus is either crazy, he's, he's a madman because of the claims that he said, he's a lunatic, and if he is that, don't follow him. Or he's a liar because he made some claims, and if he's lying, I would never tell you to follow a liar. Or he is who he claims to be, mighty God. And if he is, he's worth trusting your whole life to. You just say, here's the steering wheel of my life, Jesus. You take it from here. If Jesus is mighty God, you can't just sort of like him. He's mighty God. Second practical application is this. If Jesus is the wonderful counselor, you need to go to him. We've been talking a lot this week in the office amongst the staff about how Christmas is such a joyful time. It's such a, it's a wonderful time that just the activity this morning before worship started and the choir's here and the worship team is rehearsing and there's people and red and green and it's, it's great. But also Christmas is the time that memories of sadness start to creep up. In our American culture, we, when that memory of sadness or or longing creeps up we just let's stuff it down it's christmas after all we shouldn't feel those feelings let's let's not go there but if jesus is wonderful counselor we need to go to him because whatever trouble you are in whatever pain you are feeling you need to go to him he understands whatever you're worried about whatever you're anxious about the wonderful counselor. He understands. Whatever you're angry about, whatever you're sad about, whatever you're mourning about, you can go to the wonderful counselor. He's not only God, he's fully human. And he has experienced every single emotion and hurt and anger and pain and injustice that you have. You need to go to the wonderful counselor. Let's pray together. Dear Father, how wonderful it is that we can read this text and to see through history from days, ancient days, from old days, from the prophet Isaiah, who tells us that The virgin will be with child and she will give birth and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then we open up the Gospel of John and we find what it means that God is with us. Word has become flesh. How wonderful that is. And Jesus, thank you so much for giving up your place in heaven and coming down to us when we cry for help. In Jesus' name, amen.